right, while everybody's finding their seat, um, just a reminder on a couple of announcements. I sent out an email last week that we have a creation studies folder in the Bible under, um, you know, the Bible studies page, and then you go to doctrines and topics, and you go down, there's creation studies, and there's several videos where we had guest speakers uh, speak to the uh, pastor's group on Friday morning that are outstanding. Uh, John, John Baumgartner's got two lectures on the flood. Charlie's got three lectures, and one from Wes Humphreys and one from a guy named uh, Tim Clary, who's with ICR. And the Clary and Baumgartner lectures will give you a whole new perspective on the flood. But today I got a link from um, uh, Tommy Ice that is uh, really good. It's a little fast, but if you watch it, I'm going to give you the link, Barb. If you watch it, before you watch Bumgardner and, um, and Cl- uh, Clary, then you'll have a better understanding of what they're saying. It's kind of an overview of everything that they're saying. So it's really outstanding. It has tremendous uh, graphics in this, uh, in this video. So that'll be up there. Also a reminder, we have men's prayer breakfast with a special speaker uh, this Saturday morning, um, Wesley Hunt, who's going to be running for Congress for District 7. And so I encourage all the men to come out and support that effort, find out about him. And also, I guess that's it for, for right now. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to worship the Lord as we study the word this evening. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have a once-for-all payment made for our sin. The sin penalty has been paid for by Christ on the cross, and that our, that that is no longer the issue. We're thankful that we have forgiveness of sin, both positionally and experientially, because each day we sin so much more than we even imagine, and that you continually forgive us and cleanse us of all our sins. Your grace is so magnificent and so boundless it is beyond anything that we can imagine we neither earn it nor deserve it and it is all due to your your goodness father we thank you for your word again a manifestation of your grace to us to reveal who you are reveal to us your plan your purpose and to help us understand how you work in history and how you work in individual believers lives and father we thank you for the examples that we have in scripture like the ones we will study this evening that deal with grace so that we may understand your grace and that we can exemplify it in our own lives as David did. And, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that we're studying, see their implications for our own lives, and not be blind to their application. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are back in 2 Samuel. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 8 tonight, and by God's grace, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 9 also. 
These are a couple of chapters that we can uh, summarize and move through fairly quickly. Uh, There's a lot of detail, especially in the eighth chapter, that is just reading a military conquest list. But we have to understand that the general framework for all of this is God's grace in action. It is God's grace to David that he gives them uh, the victory. And as we'll see as we go forward, that a couple of times as you move through the text, for example, in uh, 8.6 and in 8.14, there are summary statements where you read, so the Lord preserved David. And the word preserved is the translation of the Hebrew word yasha, which means to save or to deliver. So the Lord delivered David wherever he went. Twice that statement is made. And so as we go through this, we are constantly reminded that David's victories over the enemies of Israel was all due to the grace of God. It was not due to his uh, military skill. It was not due to their advanced technology. It was not due to the fact that they had uh, superior uh, warriors in the Israelite army. It was all due to the grace of God. David had learned that lesson when he was uh, a young man fighting Goliath, that the battle was the Lord's. And it doesn't matter if the conflict is not military. The conflict in your life and my life may be, deal with uh, things that go on between our ears. That's where spiritual warfare takes place. And our battle may deal with our own emotions. It may deal with our uh, sin natures in our lust patterns. Our battles may deal with a variety of different things. But just as God gave David victory over overwhelming opposition on all sides. I mean, as you look at, we'll put maps up here, but as you look at these maps, you'll see that Israel then, just as Israel now, is surrounded or was surrounded by enemies. Enemies to the north, south, southwest, east, and always having to deal with this opposition. And yet God gave them the victory when they were walking in obedience to the Mosaic law. Then God gave them victory over the foreign armies. And when they were walking in disobedience, then God would bring defeat. And that was all laid out in the Mosaic Law. And so this is another aspect that we see in both chapter 8 and chapter 9 is that God is faithful to his covenant. We'll run, especially in chapter 8, we run into that word. We saw so much in our recent study of Psalm 89, chesed, God's faithful, loyal covenant love. And yet this time it is applied to David as David exemplifies that faithfulness to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan and grandson of Saul. So that's what we're looking at here is grace in action, God's grace to David in chapter 8, and David's grace to Mephibosheth and the survivors in the line of Saul. Now remember, that's important because they could easily lead a, a revolution an insurrection against David. And yet David is going to show exceptional generosity and kindness to Mephibosheth. And we learn here also that Mephibosheth was married, which doesn't mention his wife, but it does mention his son, which implies that he has a wife. 
And so he has a, a son, Micah, who is a, a grandson of Jonathan and great-grandson of Saul. And so there could have been a, an insurrection uh, led against David uh, around the family of Saul, and yet David chose what it means to be good to your enemies, although Mephibosheth demonstrated his love and his obedience, he swore his fealty to David, and so uh, that was not a, uh, a threat. And so David was very, very good to him. So as we come to this section in Second uh, Samuel, Second Samuel chapters 8 through 10, this will wrap up 8 and 9, wrap up the opening section of Second Samuel where we have seen that the writer speaks of the rise of David and he speaks of all the good things about David. There, there's no mention of David's flaws, David's sins in these opening chapters. That will specifically come into play once we get into chapter 11. And in the latter half of the book, we see David's failures. But the reason the writer puts this together is to, first of all, to show God's uh, promises to David and and David's loyalty to the Lord, that it's an illustration that David is, despite his sins, despite his failures, that he is a man after God's own heart. And God is going to bless David richly. He's also going to discipline David quite strongly because of his disobedience. So we get into this particular chapter, and in Second Samuel 8, is an overview of David's wars. Now, if you remember, when we started into 2 Samuel chapter 7, that 2 Samuel chapter 7 brought uh, to our attention the uh, covenant with David. But the very beginning of chapter 7 says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. This is chronologically out of order, as I taught when we went through this, because as soon as you get to chapter 8, you start seeing all of these wars, and they're given in sort of an overview fashion, especially the introduction to the wars with the Ammonites and the, and the Arameans, or as it's usually translated in modern translations, the Syrians. And so we're going to see that there is still war. Chapter 7, the bringing of the covenant... Uh, God's giving the covenant to David, uh, follows bringing the ark to Jerusalem and setting up a tabernacle for the ark in Jerusalem. And this is the culmination of the process that began with David coming to the throne at the beginning of 2 Samuel in 2 Samuel 1, uh, first in Judah and then later with all of the tribes. And so there's a positive progression there that takes us to that point of the covenant. And then we're told how God blessed David in chapter 8 with these various conquests. And then we get into chapter 9, and we see how David demonstrates his grace to Mephibosheth, who represents a potential threat, and he's extremely kind and generous to um, Mephibosheth. And then in chapter 10, there's going to be a more detailed account of this war with the Ammonites and the Syrians that's also described in uh, First Chronicles chapter 19 
and we see it going over into First Chronicles 20. So there's a lot of similarities, about 98% similarity between what is stated in Chronicles, in First Chronicles 18 and 19, and what we have here in Second Samuel chapter 8. So we're going to start, and on most of these slides I'm going to have the Samuel passage on top and the Chronicles passage on the bottom so that we can see the, the similarity here as we work through, the, work through the passage. Begins with a description of David bringing a sort of a conclusion, not an absolute conclusion, but sort of a conclusion to the, the Philistine, the, the war with the Philistines in the south. And we read in verse 1, just a one-verse summary of that war, and then we shift to another one. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. This is language that is typical through here, David attacking, subduing the enemies of God. This is what the, a Messiah is supposed to do, the anointed leader. The Messiah is supposed to protect his people, defeat their enemies, to provide for economic stability for his people, and to uh, provide an environment where they are secure and can grow in freedom and independence. And that is what David portrays as a type of the Messiah. So he is exercising his military skill and defeating the enemies of Israel. Now, the only difference between 2 Samuel 8.1 and 1 Chronicles 18.1 is in 8.1, it says that David took Metheg Amah from the hand of the Philistines, and this is, it's not really clear to what that refers. There are some different opinions on that, and I'll show you that in just a minute. In the Chronicles account, it says it took Gath and its towns. It is assumed that Metheg Amah is probably another name for Gath and its villages, or literally its daughters. And so this would be the Philistine city of Gath and then the outlying uh, villages that were supported by, by Gath. But as we go through this account of David's victories, we're reminded first in 8, that should be 2 Samuel 8, 6, and then First Chronicles 18.6. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. And literally, it's all, every time you see Syria, the text in the Hebrew says Aram, which was the name of ancient Syria. And it's not Damascus in the Hebrew, it's Darmeshech, Darmeshech. And the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute, but the key phrase is, at the end. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And that's stated in both 2 Samuel 8 6 and 1 Chronicles 18 6. And then it's repeated again in uh, 2 Samuel 8 14. The Lord, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And in 1 Chronicles 18 13. So as we look at this chapter, just to give it an overview, you've got two divisions. The first 14 verse, verses are a catalog of David's military victories as he expands the territory, as he is seeking to take control of the land that God had originally promised to Abraham. He doesn't bring all of it totally into uh, Israel's control. Much of the area in Syria and what is today Jordan becomes under tribute 
it is not totally absorbed into the nation, so he never fully controls all the land that God had promised to Abraham. That will not occur until the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. But the nations that are mentioned here, first of all, the conquest of the Philistines, second, the conquest of Moab, then third, the conquest of Hadadezer and the Arameans, and then in 8, 9 through 10, a toy of Hamath brings tribute. He has seen enough of David's victories at this point where he says, I'm not going to fight David, I'm just going to bring tribute. And he brings gold and silver and a lot of valuables. And David takes all of the uh, uh, plunder, the spoils of these wars, and he dedicates them all to Yahweh, unlike other ancient Near Eastern kings where they just take it all for themselves or spread it out among the army. He dedicates all of it to Yahweh. And it is from those spoils that they will have the gold and the silver and the uh, bronze to uh, make, to build the, the uh, temple under Solomon. And then last we see his defeat of Edom. Dr. Merrill, Gene Merrill, who taught for many, many years in the Old Testament Department at Dallas and was among the, one of the most a conservative of the faculty at Dallas, I would say, and I always enjoyed Dr. Merrill very, very much. He said uh, in his book, Kingdom of Priests, which is if you want to get a good survey book of the Old Testament, that's a good one, his book, Kingdom of Priests. He says, um, with greater or lesser success, David either incorporated these kingdoms directly into his empire or made them client states. See, the point is, un- covenant theology tries to say that this expansion uh, fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. And therefore, there's no, remember, there's no future kingdom, literal kingdom, in uh, millennialism. And so they will argue that. But as Dr. Merrill points out, uh, many of them are just client states. That does not fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He goes on to say, in any event, a significant amount of time was required. We summarize this very quickly, but it took uh, many years for these battles and these victories to take place. In fact, most of David's reign, uh, probably at least the first half of his reign. In any event, a significant amount of time was required, and it was not until these kingdoms were subdued that David turned wholeheartedly to religious pursuits. Until he got the, the nation secure, he couldn't focus on developing uh, the, the, his dream to build a temple or a house for God. As we look at a map here, now I realize that this is, you may not see it that well because this is the best I could do to get it all on the map, but this is a map of, of Israel. In the north, you have the Sea of Galilee. In the south, you have the Dead Sea. The river that runs from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea is the Jordan River. The area to the west is called Sith Jordan. That is, on this side of the Jordan, all uh, these directions are from the perspective of Jerusalem. So this is referred to as Sith Jordan, and the area across the Jordan is referred to as Transjordan. After the after World War One, that area was given to the Hashemites as a reward for their alliance to the Brits in World War World War One, 
and it was called the kingdom of Transjordan. But when they, uh, when Israel declared their independence in 1948, and the uh, five different Arab armies, including the armies of Transjordan, uh, in, uh, invaded across the Jordan River and took what is now called the West Bank, um, then it became just the kingdom of Jordan. And if you go to Jordan, you get a little guide and a security officer that rides on the bus with you, and he always says that uh, he's from the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. So the, uh, the West Bank is called the West Bank because it's on the west side of the Jordan, and that term only has meaning if it belongs to Jordan. See, today they're in just this iffy situation because the West Bank is considered uh, so-called Palestine, uh, and so the Palestinians want to claim that and want to make that an independent state. And so whenever you use the term West Bank, you're assuming that the Jordanians have some sort of sovereignty over the West Bank. The interesting thing is the Palestinians travel on a Jordanian passport, even though they are not under the authority or the government of, of Jordan. So you have on the Transjordan area, the northern part, north of the Dead Sea, is where you have uh, three different territories that are part of, of, uh, part of Israel. To the south, you have Edom in the far south, then Moab, and then here is Ammon. The capital city of Jordan is Ammon, which is a cognate of Ammon. And these were... Uh, Moab and Ammon were descendants of Lot through his, his daughters, and Edom, of course, the descendants of Esau, who was uh, uh, the father of the Edomites. Over here on the coast, this is where today you have the Gaza Strip, and in the ancient world, this was the land of the Philistines. And so what we're going to see at the beginning is David has a conquest among the uh, Philistines. That's the first verse. Then he's going to have a conquest over the Moabites, and then the Ammonites and the Arameans are going to be allied together, and he's going to defeat them, and then at the very end, he will defeat the Edomites in the south. So in 8.1, he talks about the capture of Metheg Amah, uh, which is really, which is Gath and her daughters, literally Gath and her villages. Metheg Amah is a rather difficult term to figure out. There are a lot of guesses, but the one that is close is called the Bride of the Forearm. Nobody knows what that means, so don't try to figure it out. It's probably some sort of nickname or ancient name for, uh, for Gath. And so the uh, Philistines are captured there, and that's represented on the map. See, I blew this up a little bit so you could see it better. This is to the southeast, and this is the area... Uh, Philistia here is the city of Gath. Remember, Goliath was from Gath and his brothers, so this is finishing off Gath and their hostility to Israel. Then we come to the second verse, and the second verse talks about his defeat of, of Moab. Then he defeated Moab, uh, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them all with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. That means they become a vassal state. He had two-thirds of them killed, 
and one-third survived. The Chronicles passage doesn't mention any of the casualties. Here's the map showing the location of Moab. And the reason I, I put this circle on both Moab and Edom is there's an alliance between them through a lot of this, this time period. Then we come to the next section in 8, 3 through 8. And the fight here is against uh, Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. He is an Aramean, and Zobah is located up in the area of Syria. And we're told in verse 4 that David took from him uh, 1,000, uh, what is that? 1,000 chariots and 700 horsemen. First Chronicles has 7,000. The textual error is probably uh, has to do with the Samuel account. Uh, Samuel is notorious for having uh, uh, difficult textual issues, and it, um, but it makes more sense for it to be 7,000 charioteers, and he has 20,000 uh, infantry. And so after David captures and defeats them, he hamstrings all but a hundred of the horses. And the reason he does that is because of a passage in, here we go, Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen, which is in the section, the law for the king. And there are various stipulations for the king of Israel that he's supposed to hand copy the Torah various other things, but in the middle of that, it's not only says he should multiply wives, but in 1716, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And what this is all about has to do with the fact that they are not to put their faith and trust in their military technology and skill, but their faith and trust is in the Lord, who is the Lord of the armies and the one who has promised to keep them secure. So this is the area that we're talking about here, that here is Damascus up here, and Zobah is not located on this map, but it is up in this general area. And uh, here, here we go, to Zobah. It is just to the north off the map. And so you have this alliance up here with um, Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. And it says when uh, down in verse 15, that should be five, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. So what happens is that, first of all, he is captured and killed two-thirds of the Moabites, and they're put under tribute. They become a vassal state to Israel. Then in Second Samuel 8, 6, and 7, we're told that he now puts, uh, he now controls Syria of Damascus and makes them his vassals. They became David's servants, and they brought tribute. And again, we read that God preserved David wherever he went. Throughout here, we recognize it's God, not David, not the Israelite skill, not their military might. 
but it is God's grace that gives them victory over, over their uh, enemies. As they are fighting in terms of cherry-tree, uh, David hamstrings these horses so that they cannot be used as for again in a military way they can't be recaptured and used to uh, drive chariots chariots were the light armor of the ancient world and what would happen is you would have these uh, very skilled uh, drivers of the chariots and the chariot was a roving uh, uh, firing platform for the enemy and as the chariots would pierce the lines of the foot soldiers and all that that Israel had was infantry. And as they pierced those lines, the second person in the chariot was an archer. So he had his arrows, he also had a spear and a sword, and he would be shooting from this rapidly moving, this mobile firing platform as they went through uh, through the enemy. So if they are fighting on a flat plane, it was extremely effective, but God gave the victory to Israel because it didn't depend on technology it didn't depend on the superior uh, chariot corps of the enemy. It depended upon God and his grace to David and to Israel. So we read that at the end in verse 7, David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer, and he brought them to Jerusalem. So that gold is going to be eventually melted down and used in the construction of the temple. Then we come to the uh, next verse, which also deals with cities of Hadadezer up in the north in Syria. Also from Beta and from Berotai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. Now there's an expansion on that in First Chronicles 18.8, and it may confuse you because the names are Tibhath instead of Beta, and that's probably a spelling error, B-T-H, is turned to T-B-H, okay? Remember, there's no vowels in the, uh, in the original. So there's a transposition there. It may be a spelling error or something of that nature that occurred. And from Chun, which was also a city of Hadadezer. So there's probably three places uh, spoken of here, Beta, Beratai, and Chun. Uh, and from there we're told David brought a large amount of bronze, and here we're told specifically that he used the bronze to make the bronze see the pillars and the articles of bronze in, in the temple. So that takes us down through the 8th verse, and then in 9 and 10, Toy of Hamath comes, and he brings tribute to David. He, he's seen his military victories, he's not going to be wiped out, and so uh, after witnessing them, he comes down, uh, uh, King Toy sent his son Joram or Jehoram or uh, Hadoram as it's listed in First Chronicles 18.10 sent his son to King David to greet him and bless him. Now literally in the Hebrew it, it means to come and to talk peace. That's the idea there. He is coming to enter into a peace covenant. It literally means to ask for peace, for shalom. So it, it doesn't say to bless him, but to ask for, to get, to grant shalom. Because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. So 
he sees that victory and, and gives up. And he brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. So David is amassing quite a bit of wealth, but he doesn't take any of it for himself. He dedicates all of it to the Lord, and it will all be used in the construction of the temple. So now what has happened is he has uh, conquered and put down any threat from a uh, military threat from the Philistines. They're still there, but they're they're not a threat anymore. They have there, and and then he's defeated the Moabites. They're paying tribute to him. They're vassal state. The Ammonites, the Arameans, have become vassal states, and they are paying tribute to David. So this shows that he is taking care of all of the surrounding enemies. Then in verses 11 and 12, we're told exactly what David did with all of these spoils, that he took the silver and the gold that that he had taken from all of these nations, and he gave that uh, to the Lord. These were all dedicated to Yahweh and for the use with the temple. And the nations that are listed here, Edom's mentioned in this passage, Moab is mentioned in this passage, Uh, Amalek is not mentioned in this passage, the Philistines are mentioned in the passage, and of course, Hadadezer is mentioned in that passage. And then in verse 14, he talks about the defeat of Edom. Edom is down here uh, to the south uh, along the valley that is the valley of the Arabah, which is just south of the Dead Sea between there and and uh, the Red Sea. So at this point, we're told about a tremendous battle that takes place. And this, when we get into chapter 9 and 10, uh, no, uh, 10 and 11, where we're dealing with, with the war with Ammon. This is happening at the same time as the war with Ammon. And so you have Joab, who is the general in charge of the siege of Ammon, and you have Abishai, his brother, who is fighting the Edomites down in the south. And so in Second Samuel 8, we're told David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of the Salt. Now, the Valley of the Salt is there's there's a lack of certainty as to exactly where that was located. There are some that say that it's located over, here's Beersheba and here's Arad, that it's located in this area to the west of the Dead Sea, and others that say that it's down here just to the south in the Arabah, just to the south of the Dead Sea. But there's a difference between the Samuel passage and the Chronicles passage. Uh, Here in um, the Chronicles passage, it's attributed to Abishai, the son of Zariah, Uh, Joab's brother, that he killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He's the general in charge, but he is under the command, of course, of David, who is the king. So they're both true. David gets the credit because he's the king in Samuel. Samuel is all about David. And in Chronicles, it is uh, Abishai that is spoken about because he is the general, commanding general in the battle itself. And then we come to a summary in verses 15 down through 18 where we get into a description of David's administration where David is said to, uh, to reign. Uh, 
So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Now, when it says that David reigned over all of, his, all of Israel, I want to stop a minute and just think about this. What does that mean that he reigned? It means more than that he simply uh, uh, was sitting on the throne. It has, it's, it's, it's a very pregnant concept here that it emphasizes his, his, all that he is doing to govern the nation. And this is what is developed after that because it talks about it talks about the key people in his cabinet or his administration. There's Joab, who is the commander in, over the all of the army. There's Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, is a recorder. He would be the one who keeps the official records of the administration. Then you have two priests, Zadok, the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, and they are priests. The scribe is Sariah, and then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, is over the Carathites and the Pelathites. These were mercenary forces that were fighting for, the, uh, for Israel's army. And then we're told David's sons were chief ministers, so they're also involved in the administration. But what we see is that reigning is more than simply just being the king. It implies an act, something, an active involvement in the oversight of the administration. David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Now, that doesn't mean that David personally was involved in adjudicating all, every issue, but that he's overseeing it to make sure that justice is accomplished. So when you have a nation... Part of the responsibility of the rulers of the nation is to provide for security, both domestic and foreign. They are to provide security against any foreign enemies to make sure that the nation is secure in terms of its military, that it can't be defeated. And internally, that security not only involves threats of criminality, but it also provide, uh, also implies security in terms of the finances, the economics of a nation, uh, security for doing business, security for expanding the economy of the nation. So all of that is involved here, and that's what these uh, administrators are doing. So he is, uh, this is a very pregnant concept, and it just summarized here in terms of uh, David's ad ad overall administration. We get an idea of what it means to administer judgment and justice when we look at the Mosaic Law. Just a couple of verses that talk about this. In Exodus 23.3, you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. So just because somebody is a victim, just because somebody is impoverished, just because somebody is in a weakened state, doesn't mean you show favor to them, and you sh neither does it mean to show favor to the wealthy. But see, our, 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 so there's no partiality. Uh, in Exodus 23, 6, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. So one side, you don't show partiality to the poor, and the other side, you don't show partiality to the wealthy. And in verse 15, you have... Uh, you have a f 
what we would call today a flat tax. You sh the rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. So it's not a, a taxation. This is for the uh, temple tax. They're not going, the rich are not going to pay more because they have more money, and the poor are not going to pay less because they have less money. It's a flat rate tax, the same for everybody. And so th that shows justice. And then in verse uh, Leviticus 14.21, but if he's poor and cannot afford it, then he shall take uh, one male lamb as a trespass offering to be waived to make atonement for him. So there were uh, options for those who couldn't afford to bring a bull or couldn't afford to bring a lamb, they could bring a turtle dove or a pigeon for a sacrifice. So the, this is part of the, uh, the way the scripture indicates that a government governs with impartiality. Now, that finishes up chapter 8. Chapter 8 is an illustration of God's grace to David as he expands the kingdom. God gives David the victory, not because David is more worthy than anybody else, but because this is God's plan and because David is walking in obedience. David is going to hit some rough spots in the second half of the book because of his sin. He's going to face an internal rebellion from his son Absalom, and he's going to have to flee from Jerusalem. He's going to have to flee across the Jordan, and he is going to be pursued, but God will eventually restore him uh, to his throne. So it's not that, that everything is perfect for David, but when David was walking with the Lord, then God was providing for him, fulfilling the covenant with Abraham and giving David victory over his enemies. As we studied in our study of Psalm 89, being a man after God's own heart meant that David was passionately pursuing God, even though at times he very willfully disobeyed God and sinned, which isn't any different from anybody else in this room. We all desire to know God, to be stronger believers, but at times we just give way to our sin nature, whether it's in mental attitude sins or whether it's in anger or whether it's in holding a grudge or some other way. Uh, we also uh, have those same problems. And God is gracious to us just as he was gracious to David. Now we see David's uh, example of grace. He has been the recipient of God's grace, and so he in turn uh, demonstrates God's grace to the uh, last survivors of the house of Saul. So we come to chapter t 9, verse 1. Now David said... Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there's a certain amount of um, debate going on over the syntax of this particular, uh, the way this is phrased based on similar syntactical constructions in Genesis. But I'm not going to go through all of that because it's going to leave most of you pretty glassy-eyed. Uh, the bottom line is that the argument is that the second part of the question, uh, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake, sounds in most translations as if David is seeking to show grace and kindness to whoever is left in Saul's house. 
whereas based on parallel constructions in Genesis, in two or three different examples, it might be better to understand it as a uh, rhetorical question along the lines of, should I or must I show covenant loyalty uh, with a descendant of Jonathan for Jonathan's sake? And the issue is, uh, still in the background, is the question of whether or not any survivors of the house of Saul are, are loyal to Saul or loyal uh, to David. And so that raises a question, and David is wondering uh, rhetorically whether he should honor his covenant uh, with Jonathan to Jonathan's uh, survivor. So he raises this question, and it's based on the covenant that uh, David had made with Jonathan. Notice the key word here is the word translated kindness here. We've seen it translated mercy in Psalm 89. We've seen it translated God's loyal love, his faithful love, his covenant love, his steadfast love. All of these are various ways in which this noun chesed is, is translated. And it usually refers to a loyalty to a covenant to be obedient to that covenant. And this covenant goes back to an event that occurred in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So if you want to, uh, turn in your Bible back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we'll just briefly review the situation in 1 Samuel 20. This This is in that time period when Saul is seeking to murder David. Remember, we went through this and saw that there were at least eight or nine times when Saul sought to murder David and to take his life. And so at one time, he has been welcomed back into the palace, and he's brought in there, and he has a conversation uh, earlier in in the chapter with Jonathan. And Jonathan is not quite ready to believe that his father really wants to assassinate David and get rid of him. And so they're going to set up a little test to see if, um, if, if Saul really wants to take David's life. And so in that context, Jonathan doesn't want to lose his friendship with David. He is on the good side. He wants the right thing to happen. And so he says to David, no matter what happens, I want you to swear a covenant with me to protect my son and my descendants. And so in verse 11 of chapter 20, we read, And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they go out where they can have some privacy. Nobody's going to be listening in on them. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. This is a very formal type of contract that is about to be witnessed between them. And they're making, and Jonathan is making it before God. So they are going to swear an oath. He's going to have David swear an oath before God. Now, you remember in the Ten Commandments, there is a commandment that prohibits taking the Lord's name in vain. And a lot of times, you've heard me say this before, people take that in a superficial way, that you don't use the Lord's name as some sort of a curse word or in combination with profanity. That's not the point of that command. The point of that command is to not to tell you not to say God something or, call, or just say Jesus Christ when you get angry or something like that. 
It is swearing an oath in the name of God and not meaning it. It is taking God's name in an empty, meaningless manner. And so this is when you are not taking God's name in vain. You are seriously swearing before God to, in an oath to fulfill a contract. The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. In other words, if I find out that you're okay and I don't tell you, then may God punish me. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, if I find out that Saul wants to kill you, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So what Jonathan is saying here shows a great deal of maturity here as he's the crown prince, that he's saying, if I discover that my father wants to murder you, then I will warn you, and then may God bless you as he has blessed my father in the past. He shows that if that's true, he's going to shift his loyalty to David. But the other thing that we see going on here is that, that he is binding himself to, a, to, to his conditions, and his conditions are to find out what his father's intentions are and to inform David one way or the other what those intentions are. And then David's side of the covenant is in verse 14. And you shall not only show me the kindness. See there, they've translated chesed with kindness here, just as they uh, do in Second uh, Samuel 9. You shall not only show me the kindness or the steadfast, loyal love of the Lord while I live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness, your chesed, your loving kindness, your covenant loyalty from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. That God cuts off everybody else, but you will always stay true to and protect my family. Verse 16, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. So if David breaks the covenant, then David's life would be forfeited. So David takes this uh, very seriously. So let's go back now to 2 Samuel 9. You can't just hit a back button on a printed text and have it go right directly to where you were. Okay, so David is looking for someone, and they discover that there's a servant, former servant of the house of Saul. His name is Ziba. He's introduced in verse 2. So when they called him to David, the king said, Are you Ziba? And he says, At your service. So let me tell you, we get introduced to Ziba here, and he seems to be an okay guy. But we're going to see him again in chapter 16 and a couple of chapters later where he betrays his master, Mephibosheth, and he tries to work things against David. So Ziba's really a, a wild card here. He's not a good guy. Uh, so he comes and he says, I'm, I'm at your service. And then David said to him in verse 3, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may, I may show the what? The kindness of God, the chesed of God. 
So he understands that he is part of his role as the messianic king, the anointed king, is to reveal the character of God. I need to show the kindness of God. And so Ziva says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in his feet. Now what's interesting here is when he says this, he also makes a point of bringing out the fact that, that Jonathan's son is lame. Jonathan's son being lame means that Jonathan's son is not going to be a threat to David because when you have a cripple, you're not going to be able to uh, lead a revolt against, uh, against David. So David realizes as a result of this that, that uh, Mephibosheth is not going to be a threat to him and the fact that he's lame in his feet takes us back to 2 Samuel 4.4, 4, where we're told, as, as David is taking over the kingship, that uh, when Mephibosheth was five years old, the news came that Saul and Jonathan had, uh, had been killed there at Mount Gilboa. And his nurse picked him up to flee the house, and as it happened, she was in such a hurry that she dropped him, and he became lame. And so his name was changed to Mephibosheth. Originally, his, his name was uh, Merabaal, and so it's changed to Meph- which meant Baal contains, uh, or, or Baal contends, and then it was changed to, for, to Mephibosheth, which is the mouth of shamefulness. So the emphasis here now is on uh, this being kind or showing God's grace and chesed love toward Mephibosheth. And so the king said to him, well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Let me see if I put a map over here. I don't think I did. Let me go back. We're on slide 32. Lodabar is located right here. You can barely read it, but it's just this little black dot just south of the Sea of Galilee. So this is in the north, as almost as far northeast as you can get, almost as far as you can get from Jerusalem. And so if you go back to reading what happened in the first part of 2 Samuel, and uh, Ishbosheth, who's a son of Saul, tries to <clears throat> lead a revolt that he... His center of power is up here in the northern part of the Transjordan. So this is, uh, Mephibosheth is just trying to keep his head down and not uh, be a cause of trouble, and hopefully he'll be ignored and live live a good life. So he's as far away from Jerusalem as he can possibly be. So David sends for him and brings him to Jerusalem. Let me go back to the previous slide here. That was 32, so we're in 33. So David said to him, Don't fear, for I will surely show you chesed for Jonathan your father's sake. So again, notice, again and again that same word shows up. I will show you chesed for your father's sake and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Now, 
it was required uh, once this land had been taken from the family, if there was a living heir, it was required by law to restore that to uh, to the heir. But David goes beyond that. He is extremely generous to Mephibosheth. He's going to restore all the land, and he's going to say, you shall eat bread at my table continually. I'm going to provide for your sustenance, and you're going to eat in the palace here, and he's going to provide for all of his, all of his needs and all of his uh, provisions. In verse 8, Mephibosheth shows true humility. He admit, he says that he is a servant of David and that he doesn't deserve any of this kindness. And so then David calls to Ziba in verse 9, and he says to him, I've given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. Therefore, you and your sons and your servants are going to work the land for him. And this was typical of absentee landlord-type uh, arrangements in the ancient world where the landlord wasn't there and there would be an administrator of the estate who would take care of everything. And we can imagine that since Mephibosheth can't come out and oversee everything, we get the, uh, it's laid out later, but we're not sure that Ziba has been honest in keeping the books uh, for Mephibosheth. But he is told here by David uh, that he's given the responsibility to take care of uh, the lands and the farming and to take care of all of the um, everything that belonged to Mephibosheth. And Ziba is to do this with his family. He's got 15 sons and 20 servants. So this is a large operation. He has a large number of people who are uh, going to be provided for grace by association with Mephibosheth. And then we're told at, right at the end of the chapter that Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Now, we don't hear anything more about him other than in this passage. And so it's possible that this son could have uh, led some kind of revolt. There could have been a, 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 the northern kingdom could have had some people who tried to revolt against David, but that doesn't happen. And says, uh, he, so Mephibosheth and his son would be taken care of by David. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. And then a summary statement that Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet. So David takes care of him completely in an extremely generous manner to be an example of the grace of God. So these two chapters together, sort of a transition uh, till we get into the, the battle and the wars with the Ammonites and the Syrians in the next chapter to sort of cap off these first nine chapters with illustrations of God's grace to David and the way David in turn as the anointed king, the Messiah king, demonstrates the grace of God to his people. So he is a type of Christ in that same way in that Christ is going to provide for all of his people. He's going to provide for security against external enemies by defeating Satan and the demons and casting all of those uh, hostile to, to the Lord's reign into the uh, lake of fire. And then he will preserve his people and protect them and provide for their health and their growth and their prosperity, which is what happens 
in the millennial kingdom to a large degree and then into the new heavens and the new earth. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to see these examples of grace, the examples of your grace to David, that the war did not go to David because he was uh, more technically savvy, that he was a more brilliant strategist, or that he had uh, greater weapons or greater men, but it was because of your strength. And for each of us, that is true. Our battles are in your hands. The battle is, is yours. Father, we pray, too, that we might understand this example from, from David, how he exemplified your grace, that we as believers should be examples of your love and your grace to those who are around us, that the blessings that you give us should also uh, benefit those around us, that they may be blessed by association. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.